Hello, another welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So today I'm talking to Jesse Single. He is a journalist. He co-hosts a podcast. We'll get to that in a little while. And is also a Substack person. And let me go ahead and start. Obviously, you guys see the title of this episode. You already know what we're going to be talking about. But I did not have the lost form of letter writing making a return in 2020 on my bingo card. But nothing should surprise (laughs) me at this point. But obviously, Jesse was one of the signatories on the original Harper's letter. And a lot of what happened after that, as far as the counter letter and some of the reactions to the letter kind of center around Jesse. But before we get there, just so everybody kind of understands how exactly you became public enemy number one to certain groups of people, we kind of have to go back about two-ish years now. I think it just had its two-year anniversary, your Atlantic piece. Yeah, it actually it actually predates that. So I could start from the original origin, which I think was um, 2016. Well, let's go ahead and start there and explain to people why it is that so many people seem to hate Jesse Single. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess I should just start by saying Twitter is not real life, and I um, I do not feel particularly hated in any real offline sense. There's definitely a subset of people on the left who who do seem to hate me on Twitter, although, you know, I would argue they haven't actually grappled with what I've written or not not grappled with it in the same way they would grapple with other pieces of journalism. But either way. The whole thing started um, in 2016. I did a piece called How the Fight Over Transgender Kids Got a Leading Sex Researcher Fired. And that story was about a gender clinic in Toronto run by a guy named Kenneth Zucker. He was seen as a leading uh, clinician working with trans kids, basically trying to figure out if they should transition, what the process should look like, stuff like that. He had long been unpopular in the Toronto LGBT community because there were rumors he practiced uh, reparative therapy or conversion therapy that's where you would take someone who's traditionally someone who's gay and try to make them straight you know using horrible practices from the past in his case the accusation was he took kids who were transgender and tried to force him to be cisgender so he was fired as a result of this internal investigation the investigation itself just jumped out at me the investigation itself just jumped out to me as strange, and I started looking into it, and I, I basically found that a lot of the accusations against him were either false or unproven. The single most serious accusation was that he had insulted the physical appearance of one of his patients, that he called this person, who I believe identifies as male, a hairy little vermin when they took their shirt off for him as part of an examination. I got in touch with this person, and by sort of just doing some reporting and putting some pieces together, I got I this person realized that Kenneth Zucker had not been the doctor who had done this to him. It had been someone else. So that entire charge was false. This person wrote the hospital, said, I apologize. I had the person wrong. So I was basically able to debunk a number of these charges against Zucker. This was seen as defending the indefensible because it was just sort of an established fact, at least online, that this guy had done conversion therapy. I looked into it. I was not able to find a single case of what you could fairly call conversion therapy. I do think on certain questions of like the pace at which kids transition or how long they should wait and stuff like that, he was probably more conservative than many people are now. So I don't think it's impossible to critique his approach, but he was accused of of conversion therapy, and I just did not find evidence he did that. And then we get to the Atlantic piece. 
Yeah, I uh, did a cover story for The Atlantic a couple of years ago um, on similar issues, on the question of when young people should transition, what the process should look like. It's more complicated than a lot of media accounts would have you believe because a significant number of kids who have gender dysphoria or people who have gender dysphoria at some point will not have it forever. It does sometimes seem to go away as part of just the normal psychological development process. So my story included a lot of um, interviews with, with clinicians who work with trans youth and, and so-called gender nonconforming youth. It included interviews with happily transitioned people, included interviews with detransitioners who had transitioned and then realized they weren't trans. Most of the attention was on the detransitioners because that's, again, you're sort of violating an orthodoxy by suggesting transition might not be right for anyone or that there might be a significant number of detransitioners. We don't actually know statistically how many detransitioners there are in the U.S. The one study people cite to claim the rate is low is from Sweden and from a much different context because it's from decades ago and, and they just have a different setting uh, system there. So yeah, this, this piece um, really launched an uproar that hasn't died down to this day. A subset of it has just been legitimate criticism that's usually what i get via email when people write me about it on twitter it's just been sort of a shitstorm, as you might expect i don't know can i swear on this podcast oh absolutely then it has been a giant fucking shitstorm. um yeah complete with like you know all sorts of i, I don't want to portray myself as a harassment victim in any big sense because i'm fine and i'm lucky to have a career in journalism and i have a book coming out that's not on this stuff at all so i've been very lucky but a lot of what's happened has been harassment um including people sort of fabricating stories about me and trying to sort of contrive me to events involving me and trans women just like really creepy stuff i had never encountered before and a lot of it tracks closely with the book that got me interested in the subject which is galileo's middle finger by alice drager her book is about when sort of science and activism clash, and part of it is about uh, trans stuff. And, and she talks about a researcher who, a couple of researchers who really uh, dealt with way more than I did. They, they really attempted to have their, activists really tried to destroy their reputations and spread false rumors about them and file complaints and all that stuff, you know, because they studied and talked about the issue in a way the activists didn't like, which that doesn't mean that these the victims of these harassment campaigns were correct in their scientific views, just as it doesn't mean because I was harassed that my article was correct. But the point is, there are certain issues where if you write about them in a way that it doesn't isn't in line with progressive orthodoxy, you will get a lot of harassment from the left. And that was fairly new to me. Um, I had mostly gotten harassment from the right because of my coverage of Gamergate and various sort of alt-rightish stuff. Yeah, and I reread the Atlantic piece just to make sure that there wasn't any kind of transphobic dog whistles I missed the first time, and no, they're still not there. But like you said, it, it does touch on a lot of things that the trans community doesn't particularly like people to bring up, like detransitioning and kind of questioning whether young people, like and when I say young people, I'm talking like 12, 13-year-olds, should be put on hormone therapy instead of just letting them kind of do this gradually and kind of questioning certain things that you're not allowed to question and yeah it's been some of the stuff you get is vile like just yeah, really fucking vile yeah i'm lucky look i mean especially now um uh, of course i have to tout the podcast blocked and reported patreon.com slash blocked reported between that and my newsletter in the book i'm fine i'm in like a position i think most just in terms of stability um not that any of us have stable jobs at the moment but i'm i have a more stable position than most but if, if this same sort of wave of 
I mean, a vile stuff, because that's what it is, had hit me when I was 10 years earlier in my career, when I didn't have the support of editors and stuff, it really could have derailed my career. So I, I think part of the over-the-top performative nature of it is it's like trying to send a signal to other journalists, like, don't cover this issue. Yeah, and to that point, I think let's move on to the first letter, the Harper's letter, which you are a signatory on. Um, I don't know if we really need to discuss the letter anymore at this point, since everybody has discussed it to death. There have been think pieces. There have been think pieces about the think pieces. There have been online debates, podcast episodes. I mean, it's it's. I did my own, obviously. Although, the one thing I do want to say is I did expect there to be pushback. I did not expect the full-scale meltdown that happened after like the first 48 hours after it dropped, it felt like I was watching some kind of mental experiment take place on Twitter. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? And kind of one of the, the biggest places it went that I'm still, I'm baffled as to how we got here is people somehow making it about trans people. And I'm like, nobody said anything about trans people. What, what, how did we get here? Like, yeah, I am. Um... There's just it, it's so online and it, it's just this real this fight that I would imagine the average American like struggling to pay the bills would not give two shits about. But it, it there's just sort of these claims and counterclaims that get so in the weeds. But, yeah, one of the one of the narratives that took hold was that the letter contained anti-trans dog whistles to the point where a Vox staffer, you know, sent a note to her to her editor saying that she felt less safe at work because Matt Iglesias, who works at Vox, signed it Um there's nothing remotely, you know, a dog whistle can be anything. That's why people use the term dog whistle instead of making the claim directly. But there's nothing remotely like an anti-trans dog whistle in the letter. It was signed by at least three trans people, and I, I'm baffled by that. So I think the meltdown was useful. It showed sort of the quality of argument and thought going into this. So many articles completely misrepresented, in, you know, what was in the letter, including in the Atlantic, uh, including in The Guardian, uh, a, a counter letter that was signed by, you know, some journalists at places like The New York Times and, and Vice and elsewhere completely misrepresented the letter and made unfounded allegations against some of the signatories. The fact that people couldn't just respond to the letter as it was, I think, was a useful example of, of what goes on these days where people just sort of it's all sort of in-group, out-group, tribalism. People just knew from looking around at their friends they were supposed to be mad at the letter because people like me signed it. So then they had to construct a reason, sort of reverse engineer a reason to be mad about it. And there were none really on offer in the text itself because it was three paragraphs that was, were frankly milk toast. But it was very weird to watch that and, and very um, just depressing and exhausting, to be honest. Yeah, quite a lot of people lined up to tell on themselves on this one. And just the way it got deconstructed and I hate, I hate it when people make this analogy, but I think this one is actually appropriate in this situation. Just had that very like Soviet style feel of, well, all these people signed this letter. So if you sign this letter, you must be associated with these people and that is bad. And now you are bad. And now you must do something publicly to renounce the letter or take your name off of it, which that's a topic that I don't think a lot of people kind of covered entirely here. And that is right after the letter dropped. Um, I forget her name, but the, the woman that decided to unsign the letter 
Jenny Boyland, you mean? Uh, her too. I mean that that one was just sad because oh, Carrie Gre- Carrie Greenwich. Yeah, Greenwich. yeah. The Jenny Boyland one is just sad because that was just like you guys just bullied a trans woman into unsigning the letter. Like, do yeah. you understand what y'all just did? That was insane. But yeah, the the Boyland one and kind of how it she tried to twist it in this way of saying that well, I didn't know or I was kind of kind of basically saying without saying that she was like tricked into signing the letter. So This is Greenwich. To be clear, this is Greenwich, not Boyle, right? Yeah, yeah, Greenwich. yeah. Yeah, there was a she gave like a, a, a vague statement that made it sound like she didn't know what was in the letter, but of course she did. And then I think one I didn't follow closely, but one or both of her sisters implied that someone had signed it on her behalf, which that was quickly debunked in a Daily Beast article. And then she ended up signing the counter letter, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> like she switched sides. Yeah, but I wanted to talk about because obviously you signed the letter. So mm-hmm. just for the sake of letting everybody know what exactly the process was for signatories signing onto the letter, go ahead and explain to people how this was not some kind of weird underground nefarious process where anybody was tricked into this but just like normal do you want to sign this no two journalists i respect separately emailed me and said we've got a bunch of people trying to sign this letter and they included text of the letter and i think i made one suggestion for like a word they should add but i realized it was unlikely they were going to edit it because it's just it's it's hurting cats to get that many names on one letter that was it they i think they one or both of the people who asked me to sign it um you know, touted some famous names that were on it that probably made it more likely I would sign it. But that was it. There was nothing that this sort of endless rumor mongering about this was ridiculous. I don't I can't speak to how other people were approached. But in my case, it was literally, do you want to sign this letter? Here's why we think it's important. Yeah, and it's just like I said, it had that very Soviet feel of people having to back away from it because like, oh, now it's like guilt by association. Although what you were supposed to be guilty of, I'm not entirely sure. And I'm still not. There, there are people in the letter who like supported the Iraq war and who have made terrible decisions. I think I don't support those decisions. I support the text of the letter because it's insane to imagine that by signing the same letter as people, I, I believe everything they believe on every front. I mean, it's just not an adult normal way of understanding the act of signing a letter. It, it, it's so that we have to spend one minute defending ourselves you know because other people who someone doesn't like that anyone had to spend time defending themselves because i was on the letter because i was obviously behind jk rowling and and um other people but i was one of the sort of known transphobes on it as ridiculous as i think that is this is just this is like sub middle school level thinking it's obviously the case that we signed the letter because we agreed with the letter we didn't even know everyone on the name because it was like this big messy effort so i just it's so stupid, and I, I wasted so much time on Twitter with, with just people who have no desire to actually discuss this issue but just want to turn this into another sort of mass online outrage. And that's what I don't get. Is like, I would sign the letter. That being said, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden I like co-sign Noam Chomsky and David Frum. Like, I don't understand the concept right. of, of, of this even sticking to someone. Like, why would your response not be like, well, of course not, moron. I just signed the letter. I agree with the letter. I don't agree with all the signatories. Like, you're not, like, that's not the point. But people let it be the point. And it just, it, it's such a weird climate to where people don't feel safe, I guess, to just say, no, you're stupid. Of course, I don't agree with everybody on the letter. I agree with the letter, not the signatories. Well, the other ridiculous thing was a lot of the the coverage of it, and I think maybe the counter letter did this too. I don't have it in front of me, but they made it out as though 
This letter, which was signed by Noam Chomsky and Steven Pinker, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, that that the signatories themselves were saying, we're scared of being canceled. We're scared of losing our jobs. That's ridiculous. The, the vast majority of the people in the letter, like some of them are really famous. Some of them like me aren't famous, but but have like a platform and have job stability for now. If I was afraid of being canceled over this or losing my livelihood, I wouldn't have signed it. The whole point is to like, and a lot of my coverage of these blowups have focused on more vulnerable people. One on a college student who was caught in the maws of online outrage. Another on um, a, a kid at City University of New York who made like what was seen as too mean of an anti-Israel comment and was brought before administrators, which is a horrible violation of his free speech. I've covered people who are more vulnerable because that's who I'm worried about. I'm not worried about me. Like we, Katie and I directly make money off this bullshit. It's like giving us a, a job because, because it's just, things are so crazy right now. I just, I, of all the disingenuous responses, that one pissed me off the most because the entire point of signing this letter and the way it was phrased the way it was is because we're worried about other more vulnerable people getting caught up in this bullshit and losing their jobs over nothing or losing their reputations over nothing. It's really unfair. Yeah, and it's it's one of those attacks that I really didn't get either because people are like, oh, well, these people they have jobs, they have they have tenure, they have platforms, they have money, they have this, they have that, or even in the the counter letter that they're all wealthy white men endowed with massive platforms, which I had to restrain myself from making a joke about that on Twitter, but <laughs> but yeah, it's like yeah, that's the point. These people are speaking because they can, because they know the blowback isn't really going to reach them. Although I would argue that maybe some of the people that signed the letter who work in academia might face some kind of pushback when and if they ever go back to college campuses, whenever we do college again, I don't know when that's going to happen. But yeah, that was like the whole point was that these are people who are well known. These are people who have massive platforms. If it was just 150 random people signing their name to a letter, like who cares? Like nobody's going to give a shit about right. that because who's going to promote it? Like who like that? Like you, and, you people are missing the point. And I don't, don't want to overstate it because like there's some like uh, Zed Jelani does good stuff. He's probably a little more vulnerable than me because he doesn't have sort of like a well, he might have a full-time job. My point is, if I look through the letter closely now, I'm sure I could find some names that aren't, like, super protected and for whom this was, like, an act of bravery in a way it just, frankly, wasn't for me. But the point is, everyone signing was was had an eye toward people who are in more vulnerable positions than they are. Like, that was why we signed it. That's what it says. It, it, it specifically talks about, you know, academics and artists and people like that. So, um, yeah, it just the response was so silly and, and you know, it... It was a silly discussion, but on Twitter it always is. Yeah, and the week before the Harper's letter came out, like, did we all not just circulate Yasha Monk's piece about how cancel culture is happening to normal offline people who are getting their jobs taken from them, getting their businesses destroyed off of this kind of culture? It's like, this is the point. It's that it's happening to regular, normie, not extremely online people, and that's the problem. Yeah. No, I mean, again, that's that's what I'm worried about. I do think this stuff has an effect on journalism, and I've talked about that um, on the podcast with Katie, particularly an episode we did on Barry Weiss. We're now about to record our second episode mm -hmm. on Barry Weiss because such are the times. But, um, yeah, it's a separate issue. Like in journalism, it sort of closes the Overton window because editors are very scared of, like, Twitter outrage or their own staffers revolting, as we saw at the time. So that that's an issue, too, but it's sort of a separate one. Overall, I just I don't want to live in a world where, like, the average person can lose their job over a 
misconstrued hand gesture as happened to one person or for tweeting a link to a study as happened in another incident. And the more we give into outrage culture and the more we let social media mobs have power, which is a choice because companies can just ignore them, the worse this stuff is going to be. Yeah, and it's just so much of the criticism of the original letter was just really disingenuous to me. And I didn't see anybody really engage with the substance of the letter with a few exceptions. And the people that did engage with the substance did so in a fairly respectable way, but the vast majority of the pushback against it was just dumb shit. Like, stupid, dumb shit. It's like, did you read the letter? Like, did any of you read the letter? Well, not only that, but I mean, in many cases, they, including in The Guardian, like The Guardian claimed that we said uh, the left is sort of more rude or more judgmental or whatever. You won't find that article anywhere in the letter, because I would not have signed a letter saying the left is particularly bad because I don't think that's the case. So when a professional columnist for The Guardian can just fabricate a claim that's not in the letter and her editor doesn't catch it and The Atlantic didn't, I wouldn't say it was quite fabricated in the same way it was just very obvious a sort of bad faith misinterpretation of something Ch- Thomas Chatterton Williams said, this is just bad journalism and it, it just makes, it drags us further away from truth and understanding if like we can Put our names on this letter and then no one will respond to the actual letter, but only to these bad faith caricatures of it. Yeah, and especially with that Guardian piece, it's like the whole point of the letter was that it called out Trump and right wing censoriousness. Particularly, it was about right wing censorship, not about left wing censorship, which again, did you read the letter before you commented on the letter? Nobody. Right. Or I would say, I mean, it, it, it describes Trump as a threat to democracy and it'd be harder to you know, uh, criticize them more harshly than that. And then it basically says, like, the left is it seems to be adopting some of these same tendencies, which is bad. But it in no way singled out the left. It, it made its position very clear on that. Yeah. But moving on to the counter letter, because this I found kind of interesting, specifically because of you. So what was this published in? Some publication nobody's ever heard of. But there was a counter letter, and... What I found interesting is the, and I mean, when I first saw this hit, I kind of rolled my eyes at it because like, okay, you people just spent all this time bitching about people writing an open letter and then you haul off and write an open letter too. Like, okay. But I was like, okay, let me read it. Let me, let me just see what they have to say. Maybe it will be something of value. Um, Wasn't really something of value. In fact, as people have pointed out, uh, the lies start in the second paragraph (laughs) But it's this whole, and again, this also goes back to people kind of trying to bring this back around to like the LGBTQ issue, which again was not addressed at all in the original letter, like not in any way, shape or form. But you, you, Jesse Single, got a whole paragraph in the counter letter. You got more space than J.K. Rowling did, which that to me was kind of like the aha moment. Like, okay. Now I understand who this letter is supposed to be speaking to, because I think it's safe to say that J.K. Rowling is more famous than you. Yeah, just slightly. Just a little bit. I mean, just the internationally known author, household name, and then there's Jesse Singal. But here's the thing. The letter was supposed to be for everybody who knew who you were. So this is like an extremely online thing. Where it was just like, okay, so now I understand who the audience for this letter is supposed to be. And then that was kind of when I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is stupid. But yeah, how did you feel? You got a whole paragraph. You got 
your name got called out, your whole government name, and a whole paragraph, which is more than what anybody else got in the counter letter. I mean, it's just silly. I, I, don't, I just, at this point, it, it's it's to be expected. And it also, it described my article as saying, in 2018, Single had a cover story in the Atlantic expressing skepticism about the benefits of gender-affirming care for trans youth. That's just not what the article's about. You just have to read it. It does talk about how this idea of gender-affirming care is complicated, and clinicians are still trying to figure out what the boundaries of that should be, given that, you know, 12- and 13-year-olds aren't adults. But it's just it's just an inaccurate description of the article. And then it, um, I mean, it just links to a couple of Medium posts that I would just invite people to read, because it's just this sort of interpersonal bullshit that has nothing to do with my views on trans issues and just is sort of personal grievances. And um, people should just read. One of the links says other writers. The other link says Medium posts. Um, uh, people are, I don't know why they would like, I don't think any of these links make me look bad, just like I don't think the article makes me look bad, but you would only think they make me look bad if you're already on the side, and as you pointed out, that's who they're writing it for. So it surprised me. I thought it was sort of hilarious that given the, <laughs> these are some of the top public intellectuals in the world and I got the most space, I thought that was very funny. I'm flattered. It doesn't really bother me because like, I, I think these people are sort of full of shit, frankly. And the other reaction that came out that called you out by name was, we kind of mentioned this a little earlier, that Emily Vanderwolf texts, or not texts, Twitter thread about how she was getting death threats and rape threats, and this is all so awful and horrible, and called you out by name specifically after saying that Breitbart and Daily Caller ran with her Twitter thread, which, to explain to people who are not extremely online, um... She did write that letter to Vox about Matt Iglesias signing the letter and how it made her feel unsafe. But then she also turned around and posted that on Twitter, which I have a whole rant that I can go on about taking stuff that should just be handled privately and making it public and the reasons why people do that. But this obviously generated a whole bunch of attention and a whole bunch of sympathy for Emily. And I don't know if she did get any threats or not. I, I don't want to call the woman a liar. I don't know. But the whole point is that she took this thing that should have been private, made it public, and then said that after you retweeted it, not 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 that Breitbart or Daily Caller, but you retweeted her tweet thread, that's when all of this vile hatred started coming into her feed, which if I had to pick from a group of people that were Breitbart readers, Daily Caller readers, and people that follow Jesse Single on Twitter... If I had to pick from one of those three groups of people to send somebody vile death threats or rape threats or call for her job, it's going to be the Breitbart people, honestly. Well, and also, I'm sorry, I'm slightly undercaffeinated, so apologies if I'm um, repeating what you just said. But also two articles in Fox News, Ben Shapiro mentioned it on his show, The Daily Signal, a huge number of right-wing – Twitter personalities, quote, retweeted her directly, which I think I did do. I just screen capped it. Um, as I said on the show with Katie on, on Blotch Reported, patreon.com slash Blotch Reported, um, I, don't, I don't like that I participated in the pylon of her. I think as soon as she tweeted what she tweeted, it was going to get ugly, and she was going to get a lot of criticism and harassment, and I think she got both. I'm not pleased with like the, the what I view as the small role I played in it, but any, any sane, reasonable person looking at someone who became the subject of a right-wing outrage story nationally, which it was a national right-wing outrage story for a day or two, and then decided the reason she got rape and death threats was me, 
that's more about their feelings about me than any sort of objective analysis of the situation. And I say that as someone who was blown up on the front page of Breitbart myself. Like, it's not pleasant. You get really mean emails, although I'm sure you get meaner ones if you're a trans woman. So, again, there's just a level of sort of of, of just bad faith bullshit where it's just exhausting. Like, do I really need to spell out that if someone gets all that right-wing media attention – there's unfortunately going to be some unforgivable harassment and that that can't be pinned on one individual person tweeting about her. Like I shouldn't have to point that out, but the, the sort of online discourse is such a warped funhouse mirror thing that I do. But again, I do apologize for contributing to it because I did contribute to it. Yeah. And I think that calling you out by name instead of say Ben Shapiro or anybody like that goes back to the fact that she is a trans woman. And of course you, your name holds a certain currency here in people who want to make the argument that Jesse Singal did something XYZ to a trans woman and now awful, horrible things have allegedly happened, but we can't really verify. But somehow it's all Jesse's fault because everything is Jesse's fault. Yeah, I, I think there's unfortunately some truth to that. And, you know, again, I don't want to shirk my responsibility. I, I, I've said before that if, like, everyone's piling on someone, you shouldn't join in. And I joined in and I shouldn't have, but um, I, I do not think I bear – like, again – Two Fox News articles, Breitbart, Daily Caller, Daily Signal, Ben Shapiro, half the conservative Twitter sphere. It's just it it makes no sense to pin this on me as the prime causer of it. Like, I just don't accept that. And I think anyone who argued that is just being sort of a jerk. But uh, it's not a big deal. People people endure much worse than, um, you know, a day or two of progressives yelling at them on Twitter. Yeah. Which, by the way, did anybody ever acknowledge the fact that you did delete your tweet and apologize? Um, I think a couple people did, like my followers. Uh, you, this, when this stuff happens, you're not going to see a lot of people standing up to, like, defend the target if the target is seen as capital B bad. So, like, there's a huge number of people who know how the Internet works, uh, who jumped on the pile onto me, who could have very easily said, like, you know, if they wanted to, they could, they could have said, well, fuck single, but he's clearly not responsible here, given the right wing coverage, but they didn't. But um, again, this was this was a blip and I'm I'm really fortunate. It's annoying, but it's like not it's not that big a deal. It's not in a vacuum, but it's like for you, it's almost an everyday sort of thing where somebody somewhere is lying about you. And I, w I would get annoyed by that. And I know you do get annoyed by that. And it's kind of one of those things where it's like, do I really handle this in public or do I just let it go? And it's like. Oh my god, it's been frustrating. Yeah, I still don't. I'm still not good at it, um, at handling it. And sometimes I tweet about it in a frustrating way. But it's not like the random pylons, like what we just described. That bugged me. It's really just like people straight up making up rumors and circulating them. That stuff takes a little bit of a psychological toll. It's designed to, but you know, even there, like one of the people most responsible for that was a slate writer. And I did a thing for my newsletter, um, just pointing out that professional writers shouldn't spread rumors and it, it got a you know a few ten thousands of views and i felt like i told my side and that was cathartic but what, what am i going to do other than that there's a lot of crazy people on twitter and and if i was um accused of plotting 9-11 tomorrow they would believe it but i can't i need to sort of seed any desire to control that because i can't control it well, while we're on the topic of pylons plotting 9-11 <laughs> Well, I've, I have a confession I've, to make. Well, I was told the Jews run everything, but I didn't know it was you specifically. <laughs> yeah, this particular Jew, right? <laughs> this one Jew over here apparently runs everything So, from what I've been told by Twitter. But as far as pylons and toxic environments, and since we have a little bit of time left, uh, you want to talk about Barry Weiss? 
in her letter because now we're doing yeah. letters. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I don't know the inner workings at the times, but I mostly agreed with the letter. I think the it's getting harder and harder to just represent sort of centrist or center left opinion at a lot of major outlets, including. Since Katie and I launched the podcast in particular, I've gotten a lot of concern like notes and set up some calls with journalists at various outlets, various big name outlets who don't feel like they can make arguments that are, in fact, quite mainstream because they will lead to, you know, a staff result, uh, staff revolt or in the worst cases, people can get reported to HR, stuff like that. So I think what she's referring to is definitely happening. There's a strong strain of denialism within the Times that anything like that is happening. But I've talked to people in the Times who think it is happening, including two nights ago I did. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I there's some rumors that Barry didn't handle this or that well, that she sort of reported someone to their boss for, for politely turning down a cup of coffee. If she did, that's fucked up. And, and I hope she'll explain exactly what happened. And But at the end of the day, like, if people are using the New York Times Slack channel to like put axe emojis next to her name, even if they just mean she should be axe is fired, that that's unacceptable. You can't have a workplace where, where you can definitely have a workplace where people criticize one another's work, but that level of sort of online harassment and bullying on a company platform, I, I hope the Slack logs leak because I, I think Barry's telling the truth based on what I've heard. Uh, I don't think she's making that stuff up. I bet it got pretty vicious on there, in part because stuff got leaked to HuffPo and, and stuff got leaked to Vice, and we know that people were sort of openly talking shit about her. So, you know, it's hard to know where the line is. Like, I wouldn't have a problem if people just openly criticized her columns, but it seems like things went well beyond that. Yeah, somebody out there has screenshots. You can't tell me that somebody ain't got these screenshots. Drop them already. We want to see yeah, them. We really do. Especially given that, obviously, I'm not privy to what was said on Slack, but just judging by some of the things that her own coworkers have said about her on Twitter. They'll say it right out in the open. So, of course, yeah. they, they say stuff like that and worse on Slack. Like, if you say that on Twitter, I can't imagine what you say on what you think is a private platform, even though it is one that is run by your company, which that is so fucking stupid that I cannot even begin to comprehend how anybody would do that or it would be allowed to have pin because... This and, and Barry kind of seems to step a little close to this line in the letter that this could be something with legal ramifications to it. Well, I mean, she basically said that. So I don't, you know, uh, the the journalist in me, like, can you imagine discovering a lawsuit like that? I, I would be surprised if there's a lawsuit. But she, she basically said as such that she thought it was a hostile workplace. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, and like I said, given some of the things that they've said on Twitter and some of the places criticisms of her have gone, oh boy, that could be very, very ugly if those, if those screenshots ever do drop. Because I'm thinking that some things might have been said along the lines of her Jewishness, and she kind of alluded to that in the letter too as far as learning how to brush off people saying oh she's writing about the jews again i'm like oh man what's in these screenshots the lesson here is just just talk about talk shit about your colleagues in group text Mm -hmm. like everyone else don't do it on a company platform yeah like what's wrong with you that's what the group text is for that's that's what the group dm is for like what don't do that on slack exactly (laughs) but before we leave out um on your podcast blocked and reported Tell us about it. Leave us on a happy note. (laughs) Yeah, Katie and I have been thrilled with this. It's basically just a podcast about internet bullshit. But of course, we talk about 
a lot of other stuff. Our most downloaded episode so far is just a fairly searing discussion about White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. We've talked about the Barry Weiss thing. We talk a lot about media. We talk about these weird internet fights that I think are invisible to most people, but but we view them as revealing. So it has been a, a surprisingly successful venture since we launched it. I think the Patreon launched um, two months ago now. Uh, it's been wonderful, and we're, we're so thankful for, for all the support. We get so many notes. We get so many great ideas for segments. So I would encourage all your listeners, patreon.com slash blockchainreported. Um, I also, it's separate. I have a newsletter at jessesingle.substack.com. But uh, these days, we all need to be insufferable one-man brands. So I'm just uh, plugging everything I can think of. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. So... But yeah, the the podcast has been phenomenally successful very quickly, which leads to kind of a conversation that's been happening a bit in different corners about how best to go forward with making content. Because just on the backs of their reaction to the Harper's letter, to Barry Weiss, to just the general media environment right now of people kind of branching out and doing their own thing and making money doing this. And you guys have been very successful on that too. I don't want to put your business out there but the last number i saw from you i am jealous i'm not gonna lie (laughs) (laughs) we've been very fortunate yeah and so there's something i think a conversation to be had there about how people seem to be willing to pay for content but from individual people not necessarily from outlets like the new york times or washington post who are having problems kind of keeping up a subscriber base, but obviously there is this massive audience out there that is willing to pay for specific kinds of content. And I I think that's something worth exploring. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Like, I think the Times is pretty well with subscriptions, but I think that's on the strength of their news coverage. Like, I don't think that many people are paying for the columnists, although I could be wrong. But um, I think the way Katie and I view it is like, there's a missed opportunity from a lot of these outlets where like, you know, if not that we would have ever been hired by a major outlet, but if they could have offered us a fraction of the money we're making now, we would have been happy to bring this under the umbrella of a major media organization. I mean that three months ago when we started now we have no incentive. We're just going to do it ourselves. But the point is like, we're just having this sort of normal center left conversations. If you had to flatten into a spectrum that people have around the dinner table every night, but increasingly you can't see those views expressed in mainstream outlets because things are just getting pulled to the extreme. So I think we were very much in the right place at the right time, but what we're doing is not special. I I mean, I I think we have good rapport. I think it's a pretty funny podcast. I'm proud of it in multiple ways, but it's by no means some revolutionary thing. We're just having normal human conversations that are not constricted by these dumb online boundaries that are quite arbitrary and, and, and narrow often. Yeah, I'm I'm glad and I'm happy for your success. And I, I know there's a couple of other podcasts that have had great success just having like normal ass conversations. And that's one of the things that like, even when people try to explain the appeal of Rogan, they're like, he's just a normal guy. I'm like, okay, so you just, what what you want is just to listen to a normal guy talk for three hours? Like, um, okay, I mean, dude's making way more money doing this shit than I am. So he just got a hundred million dollar deal. So apparently there is something there to that. So at this point, I think we'll go ahead and wrap this up. So one more time, plug all of your stuff. Yeah, patreon.com slash blocked and reported, jessesingle.substat.com. Uh, next April, I think it's next April, my book is coming out, The Quick Fix. That's about sort of the replication crisis in psychology and why we latch on to these overly simplistic psychological solutions to complicated problems. Whole other subject, uh, 
luckily, thankfully, very separate from the culture wars. So yeah, thank you for having me on and thanking you for um, thank you for letting me plug all my stuff. Well, thanks for sitting down with me. Totally, Jen. Anytime. Thanks. So that was my conversation with Jesse. And as always, I hope you did enjoy that. And if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.